You know, there's a uh, famous quote that is making the rounds these days. I hear it a lot in a lot of movies and uh, online. Uh, from the general of uh, the ancient Chinese army, Sun Tzu, who once said, know your enemy and know yourself, and you will always be victorious. Well, believe it or not, I think uh, Sun Tzu was on to something because the Apostle Paul talks about the spiritual battle that we are involved with in very similar terms. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he makes this interesting statement. He said this, lest Satan take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices or his schemes or his strategies. You know, one of the things that uh, we run into as believers in Christ is sooner or later, we're going to realize that we are involved with spiritual warfare. And there's all kinds of teaching on spiritual warfare from the sublime to the ridiculous. In fact, I think if there's an area that Satan likes to concentrate on in terms of deception and distortion, it has to be on the subject of spiritual warfare. And that would only make sense if you can come against uh, the uh, opposing forces uh, that are trying to thwart your desires in this world and get them confused, uh, get them uh, distracted, and have their ideas about what's really going on distorted, well, you've kind of won the battle without firing a shot. The cure to that kind of confusion is obviously the clarity about spiritual warfare we can receive from God's Word. And I think it's really kind of ironic in a lot of ways that one of the most clarifying passages that we can find about spiritual warfare is contained in a book that uh, for a lot of people, uh, a lot of even pastors will say, is one of the most confusing books of the Bible. Oh, you shouldn't get near the book of Revelation because it's just going to raise more questions for you than it's going to give you answers. Well, I think that's spiritual warfare in and of itself. Because tonight in Revelation chapter 12, I, I loved the uh, title that uh, my son Sean gave to this. Everything you ever wanted to know about spiritual warfare, but were afraid to ask. Uh, that's what we're really going to get into tonight here in uh, Revelation chapter 12. Uh, and, and we're going to pick things up in verse 7. Now, to catch up to speed, uh, Revelation chapter 12 itself brings us to a bit of a break in the book of Revelation, does it not? Yeah, yeah. So we, we have been focusing on worldly events and things happening within the sphere of governments and politics. And we just got done learning about the two witnesses stationed in Jerusalem who are murdered and the way that the world responded to it. But now John is given a vision of heavenly cataclysm, which is... Right a little bit more frightening than what we're seeing on the earth. So even though the, the earth is in this massive form of uh, earthly upheaval, we have this now heavenly upheaval that's also occurring. And uh, we've spoken about this before, but the book of Revelation isn't written necessarily in a chronological fashion, meaning that it's not written in the sense that you go from Revelation 1 to the end and everything that's happening in every chapter is building on the previous ones. Sometimes you're going to be given an event, and then the next chapter actually explains the event, how it came to be. Right. So actually, what we're seeing here is the precursor to how Revelation 9 actually occurred. So yeah. if you were with us in Revelation 9, 
it begins with Satan falling to the earth and opening up the pit of the Abuso. This actually tells us how that happened, right? What yeah. happened in heaven that caused Satan to fall. And we'll find out in a second that Satan is not actually on the earth, as some people tend to think. He actually has a different dwelling place. Doesn't mean he doesn't have influence here, but he has a particular... Or access here. But, access, yeah. but he has a particular job right now right. that uh, allows him to be in heaven. Seems to take up most of his time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's so fascinating. If you were with us last time, you, can, uh, you will remember this, but if you weren't, you can certainly uh, look up the teaching online because it's really significant. Uh, the, the focus of God writing this world gone wrong is all about his dealings with one nation in this world, and that is the nation of Israel. Uh, we see a great sign in the heavens. Uh, here's a little hint for you doing your Bible study work at home. When the Bible speaks about a sign, start looking for symbolism. You know, it is very, very good about telling us now we're getting into the spiritual realm. And in order to communicate the spiritual to individuals that are very, very comfortable living here in this physical world, you're going to probably have to use some this is like kind of language. And, and we see that. We see these pictures. We see these symbols that are presented to tell us quite a bit about what God's main purpose is in this world. If we're going to learn what Satan's mainly up to, begins by showing God's main purpose in this world, that is to raise up from one nation, identified by the symbolism that we find here, a, uh, a family of people, but most importantly, one individual, a fellow by the name of David, who would have a son who would come into this world and be the Messiah. Uh, we see that world history in a real way can be defined as Satan's attempts to thwart the coming of this Messiah in the world. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, he was, uh, in a sense, given a heads up that a uh, descendant of the woman, not of the man, would come and would crush the serpent's head. And so, again, this dragon, as he is referred to here in Scripture, Satan without disguise, if you will, no longer masquerading as an angel of light, but showing his true character, uh, is uh, poised to take out this child as soon as he was born. And a lot of what we see in the Gospel accounts about Herod's desire to take out Jesus uh, and uh, the uh, potential threat to his throne really plays into what was going on behind the scenes. But lo and behold, his attempt was thwarted. Uh, God preserves this child. He is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The child was caught up to God and has thrown the ascension of Christ here. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her for 1,260 days. So Israel, we are seeing at the midway point of the tribulation period, is taken into a place where at least a remnant of Israel, a believing remnant of Israel, is going to be protected and preserved. And at the end of this chapter, we'll come back to this whole deal, this whole dynamic about how uh, Satan is going to try to take out Israel and his rage and his, his uh, attempt to try to hit God where his heart really dwells. But... Now we leave planet Earth. We've seen what's going on spiritually behind the scenes on planet Earth. Right. And now we take a look at what's happening in the heavenly realms at this time. Yeah, that's right. So we pick things up in verse 7. And th this is one of those 
short passages that you wish was longer, but you also kind of don't because of how creepy it is. Like, it's very <laughs> yeah. spine tingling yeah. and, and off. But uh, so verse seven starts like this. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Yeah, boy, you want to talk about a passage that is loaded with not only uh, biblical significance, and we're going to try to you know, illuminate some of these statements that are made here, and hopefully clear up some misconceptions that you've may have picked up along the way uh, about spiritual warfare in general, but uh, also to be able to see exactly how Satan's career is going to proceed and a little bit about his character, because uh, one of the things that Satan really likes to lie to people about, uh, kind of like politicians, is he likes to, as they say, gild the lily. He likes to enhance his resume. He likes to make people think he's more than he is. Notice it says war broke out where? In heaven. In heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Well, this is a real uh, stunner for a lot of people, because there are those who believe that God cannot tolerate any kind of evil in his presence. And, and so they would consign Satan to being in hell. Maybe they'll concede that he's here on earth. But this passage is saying that Satan and his angels have heavenly access, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And we, uh, we shouldn't be surprised by this if we've read through the Bible, because we do see Satan in heaven, depicted in heaven in multiple accounts, uh, the most famous being the book of Job, where Satan is in heaven, and he is talking about Job to God with the intent of God striking Job and taking away some of his protection so that Satan might go about doing a lot of damage to Job, which he does. Right. And then also in the book of Zechariah, you see Satan, again, present in heaven, accusing Zechariah, which we'll talk about more in a second. But yeah, we, we do get this idea that Satan has access to heaven, and he has, like I said, kind of a job there, if you yeah. want to call it that way. Yeah, and just a little bit of a departure here. Where does this idea come from that uh, somehow God cannot tolerate any kind of evil in his presence? Well, it comes from misunderstanding of a passage in the book of Habakkuk, where it says, you are of pure eyes than to look upon evil. And so it says, well, you see, God can't even look upon evil, and so there's no way that Satan could have access in his presence. But the context of the statement in Habakkuk is that God cannot look upon evil with approval. In other words, to look favorably upon it or to, in a sense, overlook it. That's all that passage is saying. God will judge evil. Yeah. So when we say that, like, God must judge sin, that's what we mean. It doesn't mean it has to happen now. 
Because if it happened now, then nobody would be left, right? right? So all the all the demons would be out of heaven, and all the humans would be out of earth, and we would all be in hell. Yeah, the old uh, saying, if God were to eliminate all evil at midnight tonight, how many of us would be around at 1201 to talk about it? Right. So, yeah. Right. So God is patient, and it's very interesting because God is patient with Satan and the demons. Not for the same reason why he's patient with us, though. He's patient with us out of hopes that we could be reconciled to him. He's patient with Satan for a very different reason. We're going to get a little bit here, but we're going to get even more in Revelation 20, where Satan is bound for a thousand years and then released for another purpose. So, yeah, why is he released again? We'll find out the answer to that. Exactly. Yeah. So God, even though God doesn't want Satan to be around, he doesn't desire or admire Satan, and he doesn't have any faith that Satan could be reconciled to him or the demons, but the demons and Satan serve a role. They serve a purpose in God's sovereign plan in his uh, redemption strategy towards humanity. He must provide some sort of an alternative to the truth, and this would be presented in the form of a lie or a deceiver, namely Satan. There also seems to be, and again, we don't get a lot of this or understand a lot of this, but the angels themselves, so Satan draws a third, Two-thirds of the angels remain loyal to God, right. and they have roles as well, because God could easily just quash this rebellion in a second with a word. But he allows, I think this is very fascinating, he allows the angels to fight the demons. He allows this warfare to break out in his kingdom, and he allows it to be stopped by the angelic forces. He doesn't just step in and say, done. So, yeah, why do you suppose that is? Right. So, I mean, I have some theories. I'm not really too positive. But, so take this with a huge grain of salt because I'm probably wrong. But my personal thought is that God, again, wanting to do work through his creation as opposed to just solve every problem, he allows us to have freedom. He allows us to have liberty and he allows us to work things out. And so, in other words, God desires glory through his creations not merely through his force. So a good example of this is kind of, this is going to be a weird example, but there is a trope in plays and books called De Ex Machina. Yeah. And it's yeah. always hated and despised. So it's basically, you're a writer, you're kind of lazy, you've written yourself into a corner, you're like, oh gosh, how am I going to get my heroes out of this situation? I've created the villains that are too great, their power's too great, I can't get them out, what do I do? I know, I'll have a god show up. Right, and so they just kind of write a god into the play. It, right? It's kind of like time travel in every sci-fi exactly. film around. That's you know? a day ex machina. Oh, you know? oh my gosh, <laughs> I, I don't know how I'm gonna. Ah, I know an alternate reality. That's it. Yeah, it was all a dream. Yeah, you know, they just exactly. kind of write yeah. themselves, yeah. and everybody yawns, and they're just like, "Oh my gosh, how not lazy. again, not again." <laughs> yeah. You know. So we're not opposed to the idea that the author. Sorry, is, Marvel movies. Yeah. <laughs> so as an audience, we're not opposed to the fact that the author is omnipotent when it comes to his own stories, meaning that he has all power to do what he wants within his own stories. What we want him to do, though, is we want him to work throughout the mechanisms that he has created, right? So a good author is someone who creates mechanisms that can solve the problem of the plot for themselves. They don't need the author to come in and do this kind of lazy writing thing. Yeah. God is not a lazy author, yes. right? So he creates beings, he creates creatures that can function in a way that honors his character and his being and his nature within the heavenly 
places. So he allows the angels to do that. Much in the same way, some people ask, like, why does God rely on people to get his message out to the world? Right. You know, why doesn't God just, you know. Just, I ask myself that often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jesus once made the threat, you know, if these are silent, the rocks will cry out. And some of us as Christians are like, I kind of want to stop sharing my faith and see if Jesus means that. You know, yeah. like, what if, what if that mean? I think a rock would be a much better evangelist than this guy. You know, like, I think that they would. I've made some rock-headed attempts yeah. at evangelism. But. <laughs> but to have an actually inanimate object come to life and preach the gospel would be far more effective than anything I could do. Or to just have God supernaturally speak to people in a very effective and impersonal way. The old question, if God wants me to believe in him, why doesn't he just appear in the sky tonight and do it? Exactly. Yeah. Right? Which yeah. he has the power to do. Yeah. He absolutely can do that. But God delights in utilizing or using his creatures. He wants us to share in his power and in his glory and the way that he does that is by allowing us to work, right? Allowing us to work. Now, nothing's going by chance. It's not like God is like, well, you know, Michael, it's up to you. And I hope you win, you know, because I'm not going to step in. Yeah, good <laughs> luck, buddy. You know, God doesn't leave anything to chance. He knows exactly how things are going to play out. But he allows for, again, that freedom of his creatures to be honored in these really incredible ways. So I think that's a very beautiful attribute of God. I think it's very amazing. Uh, I think one pastor put it best. He said, if God did everything for himself, then humanity would have no place in the cosmos and we would feel powerless and without any uh, basic belief that we can do anything that matters. But if God just completely let go of the cosmos and says, it's all up to you, then I don't think any of us would get up in the morning out of fear of how much we would screw up God's creation. Right. So this kind of belief that God allows us to work, but has the power to hold things correctly, allows us to work without fear. We're working with a safety net, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Michael goes into this battle knowing who stands behind him, if exactly. you will. Now, let's talk a minute about Michael here. And uh, war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Michael is a controversial character in this passage, is he not? Yeah, he's, he's controversial in a lot of passages. Yeah. Uh, a lot of cults believe, Jehovah's Witness being the main one, believe that Jesus is the Archangel Michael. Now, the reasoning for believing this is pretty flimsy. Uh, it's basically, they believe that Jesus is an Archangel. The only named Archangel is Michael. Therefore, ipso facto, Michael and and Michael means who's like God. That's right. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And, and so their, their reasoning is very flimsy. It's very small. Uh, some of the depictions of Michael, like, say, uh, in, in the scriptures, seem kind of like Jesus's descriptions. So some people are like, oh, it's got to be it's got to be the same person. Um, Michael seems to have a role among the angels that has a large amount of authority. It says Michael and his angels. So th there are reasons. And in the book of Jude, you see Michael doing something that totally mirrors something that Jesus does in the book of Zechariah. Um, he has a very similar dialogue with Satan. It's a completely different circumstance, and Jude makes it very clear. It's not the same instance, but the reaction of Michael is very similar of the reaction of Jesus in the book of Zechariah. In Jude 9, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So there are reasons why, people, why they would make this inference. Again, it's pretty weak reasoning, but there are reasons why people would ascribe the identity of Michael as being synonymous with Jesus. Um, the, the very obvious reason as to why we would reject that is because 
Michael is an archangel. It's very clear that he has a, he has a created design by God to function within the angelic host. Jesus is uncreated. So therefore, he cannot be an archangel in the way that Michael is. He can be utilized in a position of a messenger of God, but he cannot be this kind of messenger that we see Michael acting in. Yeah, and sooner or later you're going to get into a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness who's going to try to tell you that Jesus is an angel based upon this and say, well, see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. You know, the angel of the Lord uh, seems to behave like Jesus uh, behaved. And so how can you say it's the angel of the Lord there and then not see him as an angel over here? Well, fortunately, the Bible gives us crystal clarity on this subject. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, speaking about Jesus, we are told that Jesus has received, has become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Never said that to Michael. Uh, again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Never said that to Michael. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Him. Now, when we see angels, we see them having a, just an incredible aversion, yeah. a revulsion to the idea of receiving worship. In Revelation 19, we will see the Apostle John getting carried away, falling down to worship the angel who's giving him this tour of these last day's events. And he says, see that you do not do that. I am a servant of God just like you are. Worship God for the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus. And so, you know, John is brought right back up on his feet. Interestingly, when John falls at Jesus' feet in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus doesn't help him up. You know, he isn't saying, oh, that's inappropriate. I am just an angel. I'm Michael. You know, I'm, a, you know, I, you just worship the Father. No, Jesus receives that worship in Revelation chapter 1. So if the JWs ever come after you on that, you've got at least a basis to work on that. And, and just a little aside here, cults do us a huge favor as believers. Did you know that? Uh, you know, it's kind of C.S. Lewis's old devil's mousetrap thing that sometimes when Satan thinks he's doing his worst, he's really doing his best. Cults will do you a tremendous, tremendous service if, like, they nail you to the wall while you're talking with them on your porch on Saturday. Uh, you know, you go, wow, you know, I, I don't know why I believe that Jesus is God. Well, you've got a fork on the road then. You can give way to despair, you can give way to deception, or you can dig for your answers. You know, I, I think about my academic career, such as it was, and it's funny, of all the, the questions that were ever asked me on exams, and this is really true, especially in my seminary career, I don't really remember all the ones I got right, but I do remember vividly the ones I got wrong. And, and, you know, if we get nailed a bit by these individuals that are sharing a different Jesus or trying to do a song and dance that they know the scriptures better than you, believe it or not, it can be the best thing that ever happened to you if it makes you own your own faith and dig for the answers in the scripture. Find out what you believe and why you believe it. You know, you've had quite an illustrious track record of interacting with these folks, and I'm sure you'd bear witness to the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the Jehovah's Witness were the first cult group I ever encountered, uh, becoming, uh, getting out of the Marines and hanging out. I, I was able to actually communicate with several Jehovah's Witnesses, and the first couple 
uh, conversations I had with them, I just got annihilated in the debates. I was just like, I, I don't know, you know, like I was, I, you know, I don't know if you guys have had the same kind of experience, but I, I didn't know half of what they were talking about. I was uh, describing the Trinity in an inappropriate way. I was describing it more like uh, uh, the uh, Jesus only Pentecostals, uh, just like oneness Pentecostalism. I didn't even know that. So they were able to really move me in a way where I, I recognized, oh my gosh, like I really don't understand a lot of these doctrinal statements. And it forced me to really dig. So there's a reason why I now have a lot of these things memorized and I'm able to just kind of quote them very rapidly. These quotations about Michael the Archangel and why I don't believe Jesus. It's because I've actually gone to bat against these people uh, quite often. I've gone into Kingdom Halls. Yeah, you're, you're comfortable with. sitting down and right. talking with the head of the Kingdom Hall about these issues. Exactly. Yeah, I've gone Mormonism as well. Yeah. yeah, Mormonism as well. Mormons are a little more fun. They're, they're usually just like, ah, you know, it's all relative. You know, they're, they're kind of <laughs> like the buddy buddies. The Jehovah's Witness are like, no, we disagree. This is why. And they got like their little pads and they're, you know, like they have the little iPads now and they're able to like pull up articles while you're talking to them and be like, what about this? And what about this? And it's, it's very, it's, it's like going into a, it, like a battle. It really is like a battle royale. They will, they will stick to their points and they will fight you to death on them. Mormons are a little more squishy. They're like, oh, you know, yeah, okay, you yeah. know, Jesus whatever, God, whatever you know, folks right? your boat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joe's was like, nope, you are wrong, and I'm going to prove you wrong right now. And so uh, it's been very cool because I'm more hard-headed. I actually tend to like talking to Jehovah's Witness better. Uh, <laughs> it's just kind of a weird part about me. But I think a lot of people are turned off to Jehovah's Witness because of that, because of how hard-headed they are and how intense they are. I'm kind of cut out of that cloth. I would much rather you tell me to, your, to my face, like, I think you're totally wrong. I think you're going to hell. Then the Mormon who's just like, oh, you know, maybe you go Kind of like punching cotton yeah. candy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, maybe maybe yeah. I'll see you in heaven. I don't know. You know, yeah. like that. Yeah. That, that kind of bothers me a little bit more. I want a little resistance. So, yeah, it definitely has had Jehovah's Witness in my life have had an amazing effect of teaching me about uh, my doctrinal faith, my belief in God. And it's been incredibly rich. Uh, because once you start seeing the contrast, you start actually really recognizing why it is so precious. I never thought that the doctrine of the Trinity would ever become precious to me. Mm. That I just, I love the doctrine of the Trinity. It is so beautiful. Yeah. And it just, it breaks my heart that these people don't have that. Because in their version of the Godhead, you have the Father creating the Son and then sensing that son to die. You have almost like this indoctrination campaign going on where he raised the son up to die for our sins, but is unwilling to get bloodied in his own right. In the mm. doctrine of the Trinity, you have this amazing, beautiful, complementary system where you have the father and the son coexisting for eternity, loving one another, caring for one another, and then the son going and free by his own free will volition not being influenced or coerced by the Father, going to earth, living amongst us, dying for us. And so you, you have, in one instance, two of the greatest aspects of love demonstrated for us on the cross. You have the free will offering of the Son of his own life, and you have the free will offering of the Son from the Father. And that both of those instances, by the way, are utilized by the biblical authors to show us what love really is. Now, it's amazing. It's incredible. It's beautiful. I would never really see that, though, unless I went to war with these kind of people. Yeah, yeah. Or the beauty of the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. When you see the burden that the cult members carry, 
man, they're out there, they're sharing their faith. Some of them, one of the guys I, I talked to, he had no joke. He spends 30 hours a week evangelizing. Wow. So that includes studying up to debate people like us and going out and actively sharing his faith. Amazing. Amazing. I've never met a Christian who dedicates 30 hours a week to evangelism. That's all they do. It's incredible. But that guy is burdened. The reason why he's doing it is because he is afraid that he will not measure up to God's standards and be cast out. The, the Jehovah's Witness have this really horrible belief system that even when you're in the new heavens and the new earth, you could be annihilated. You're not secured in God's eyes ever. You are always working to maintain your place before God. I praise God for the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. But that happens, again, that appreciation for grace, that appreciation for the Trinity and the incredible intellectual complexity that it contains, it only really happens when you, when you have that resistance. I don't know of anyone that would study that just because. You know? yeah. <laughs> You'd have to yeah. have a very special mind to do that. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons we really exhort you guys to go out and share your faith is this. You'll own it, you know? I, I mean, I kind of got thrown into the mix right off the get-go because I was raised by an attorney. My dad was an atheist. Suddenly his son's one of those born-again Jesus freaks. And man, my dad was going to stomp that right out of me. And, you know, I tell people I used to have, present legal briefs to get the car keys growing up, you know. And so, you know, you know, well, I'm just perusing the book of Acts for the first time in my groovy The Way of Living Bible. I've got my dad asking all these hard philosophical questions of me and, and all this stuff. And man, you either, you either start swimming or you're going to drown, you know. But the wonderful thing to me was my dad always said that truth was found in the marketplace of ideas. That's one thing he always believed. And uh, if something is true, it stands up under examination. And he didn't realize it, but he was really providing a, a foundation for my faith because he'd ask me these hard questions and my older brother would ask me these hard questions and, and my cousins would ask me these hard questions and my aunts and uncles would ask me these hard questions. But the, the, the exciting thing to me was at first I was just like, until like, whoa, man, well, maybe they got a point, you know, maybe I'm, I'm off base here, man, I really got to, I mean, I knew who Jesus was, but I didn't know how to answer these things. But I discovered time after time after time, solid answers. You know, far more satisfying answers than the worldview that I'd come from. And, uh, and like you, I wouldn't have known that if my faith hadn't been challenged a bit. Don't be afraid to get challenged a bit. Don't be afraid to make a mistake or two. You know, we get in this perfectionistic thing like, oh, if I don't share my faith personally and if I don't close the deal and pray the prayer with somebody, I've failed. Now, every time you share God's word, his word never returns void. And the other thing I'm going to tell you is this. When I saw this beautiful uh, passage in, in Acts 16 this week about Lydia, and I've been reading through Chuck Smith's commentary on that, and he really emphasized this point, that God opened Lydia's understanding to receive the gospel. And the only time anybody comes to faith is if God intervenes and does a miracle. Uh, I, I think the people that have come to faith through my ministry sometimes have probably come to faith in spite of me, not because of me. But, but the beautiful thing is this, the more you get out there and share, 
The more you get on the front lines, uh, the, the more solid your faith is going to become. You know, we just have to get over that fear factor, if you will. You know, going, oh my gosh, you know, what if, uh, you know, they, they ask me a question, I don't know an answer, I'm going to lose my faith. You won't lose your faith. You'll, you're going to gain your faith. Socrates yeah. said, one of my dad's favorite philosophers, the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. The unexamined faith is not worth having. Right, yeah, if you're afraid that your faith, if it's challenged, could go down, it's not real faith. Whenever I sit down with uh, any cult member, uh, ever since those first years, back in 2012, when I started having these conversations, every single time after that, I, whenever I would sit down with a cult member, whether they be an imam from a mosque, whether they be a Mormon elder, whether they be a Jehovah's Witness, whether they be an atheist, I say, I believe firmly that what I believe about God is correct, but I am willing to be proven wrong. I stake my entire life on this, and if you have information that convinces me I'm wrong, I will convert. I will stop believing what I'm believing because life is too short to waste on fairy tales. I say, would you do the same thing? And you see a lot of people kind of back up and they're like, well, you know, <laughs> but, but a lot of them are unwilling to say that. I've had a couple people take me up on that, but yeah, I, I am willing to say that. But most people, they're like, well, let's just get into it. They won't even answer the question because they're so afraid that their faith is fragile. And if my faith was based on what some guys in Brooklyn, New York, yeah. at the Watchtower Tract and Bible Society were saying, I'd be afraid to. Absolutely. If Absolutely. my faith was based on Joseph Smith, the more you study him, even from Mormon history books, yeah. I would be afraid as well. Absolutely. And I, you know, when I say that to people, I say it with the utmost of sincerity. I'm not blowing smoke. You know, I am really saying that. If I am wrong, I want to know. I want to know. That kind of confidence only can come from a faith that is rooted in truth. Faith that is rooted anywhere else will not be able to withstand that kind of salvo. So. Yeah. So we, we've, we've done a little departure from the Archangel Michael here. That's okay. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we we want to give you something to hang your hat on. One of the things that has kind of frustrated me over the years about a number of studies of the book of Revelation I've gone through is you never get around to the so what. Yeah. You know, you just get lost in all this stuff and speculation about the future. But, you know, this book is intended to be a blessing yeah. that, you know, blessed is the one who hears the words of this book and, and heeds them. Yeah. You know, it, it's really the only book of the Bible that has that unique invitation uh, attached to it, that there's a real tangible blessing right. from hearing this and reading it and relating it to other people. So we, we try it, to provide that. It does that. actually fit. It, you know, it may sound like a total departure, but it actually does fit in understanding what spiritual warfare is all about. Remember, Satan is a spiritual being. He's not physical. He's not going to show up to your house looking like a dragon and try to eat you. That's not how Satan attacks you. It, we actually are told one of the main methodologies of his attack is deception. And deception, like I said, in Satan's hands, deception is intended to bring people away from the truth. But in the hands of God, Deception brings contrast to the truth and therefore clarity. Right. So in other words, in a world where there's only truth and no deception, and all you know is truth, which is what the Garden of Eden was, then you don't know that there's other options out there and whether or not the truth really is truth with a capital T. It is only when truth comes under fire from deception that the truth becomes more clear, more real. 
more real and more stable. So God allows, this is weird to say, God allows deceit in the world to prove the truth. So Satan thinks that he's getting one over on God, but God is using Satan's capacity as a deceiver to prove himself. So I think that's very uh, amazing to understand about our God. Yeah, and, and just one other practical point before we move on here. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know how many of you spend much time on social media, uh, you know, seeing what it's, it's kind of like the ancient agora, the marketplace where ideas like Mars Hill, where the philosophers and some really bad philosophers, by the way, <laughs> go to, to opine in, in these days. But one of the interesting things I've seen from Christians, and I see it a lot, is people are saying, wow, you know, after uh, the Supreme Court leak, on the potential uh, reversal of Roe v. Wade and everybody going aggro uh, after all of that. Uh, you know, there were, there were a number of Christians that were just like, you know, you see these gnarly statements that people are making and just the, the wickedness and in-your-face evil that is just right out there in your face. You know, there was a time where you're like, well, you know, these people are into abortion. They're kind of Moloch worshipers. They like sacrificing their kids to, to idols. Ha, ha, ha. You know, it, it's not really ha, ha, ha anymore. You know, there was one Hollywood actress who gained notoriety today by saying, if I could, I'd sleep with Donald Trump, and then I'd bring his baby to term, and when the baby was being born, I'd cut its head off. And I'd just like... Whoa, man, that is wicked. Not in the sense we used to say in the 60s. That is just evil. You smell the sulfur going on here. And believers see this, and they're like, oh, man, I used to like it when non-believers were polite, you know? <laughs> I mean, they were still lost, but they weren't, you know? And, and one of the things I tried to share on our Twitter timeline was this. Man, be excited living in times like these. Because the more evil presents itself and gets out of the shadows and is in your face, like you mentioned, the contrast of the truth of God, the contrast of having a genuine relationship with Jesus, the contrast of not having to be reactive to someone who says something like that and goes, well, you're going to the great weenie roast uh, in eternity and I'm glad you're going. But, but just to be able to respond and say, do you hear yourself? You know, how did you get to this place where you would say something like that and really believe it? People are like, whoa, you know, we just live in such a wonderful time. I would much rather be sharing my faith in a time like this than kind of in the stereotypical leave it to beaver 50s where everyone says, Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. Everybody's a Christian. I was born in the United States. Of course I, I, I'm a Christian, you know, and you go, well, but don't you know you have a sin, sin problem? What do you mean? I go to work 40 hours a week. I provide for my wife. You know, she always has dinner on the table. I've got my, you know, 2.3 kids. I've got my, you know, Chevy in the garage. I, I'm, I'm okay. I'm a good person. You know, it's much easier to start telling people, maybe you're not as good a person as you think uh, these days. Uh, and and I, I think it, it's wonderful because even if we're catching flack, as they say, it just means you're over the target. It means you're making a difference in this world. 
if everybody's just patting you on the back and telling you how wonderful you are, uh, you know, I, I saw a, uh, another uh, tweet about a, uh, a pastor whose books and his ministry reached all of these powerful people in Washington, but now all these people in Washington who he reached aren't even believers anymore. And, you know, when you, when you read the books, this one guy said, yeah, I gave his book to an atheist to read. And he said, I just felt like I was being conned the whole time. I felt like this guy didn't really believe that I was lost, but I, I, he may have believed it, but he wasn't going to say it. And I just found it disingenuous. And, and the, 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 the conclusion I came to is this. If you share your faith by accommodating with people, the only thing you're going to convert people to is accommodation. And remember that. But if you tell people, if you love people enough to tell them the truth about Jesus and what he did for them and how much he loves them and the change that he can make in their life, then you got something going for you. But, but that's the world that we live in right now. And, the, you know, the spiritual battle that we uh, don't see is what's being reflected in the reality that we do see. So and back to why, the text. Yeah, <laughs> that's why, you know, this description in verse 9, the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. That's a very important statement. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. In our modern day, um, it's kind of uncouth to admit that there is some sort of a satanic evil force out there. We tend to try to explain everything in a self-contained apparatus, that everything's material. And actually, the first book that I wrote, Rooted in Sin, Rescued by Love, has to do with this issue that I was noticing even amongst biblical counselors, people were unwilling to use words like sin, evil, wicked, they would use things like, well, you have a disorder. You're sick. Dysfunction. You're dysfunctional. Yeah. Yeah. You have an addiction. You were abused as a child. You have this disorder. You have that disorder. Everything had to be understood in a totally materialistic framework. There was no way that they would allow even an inch for a spiritual explanation to creep in. Now, we can make two equal and opposite errors. As Christians, we could say, aha, you know, that means that everything is a spiritual problem. It's all the devil. The devil made me do it, you know? Yeah. So if I cheat on my wife, I got the demon of sin. I got the demon of lust in me. And that, that was... was me. That out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's, it was a demon of yeah. lust, and that's, that's what happened. Notice what it says. It doesn't say Satan courses anyone to do anything. It says he deceives, he manipulates, he lies. That's what he has the power to do. He can excite in us sin, but he can't create it. That's something that's beyond the power and the potency of Satan. Beyond that, I have no problem using words like addiction and dysfunction and disorder. I have no problem utilizing those words because they exist. But they only describe people on the ends of the bell curve, people on the far ends of particular psychological disorders that help us understand their psyches. However, it doesn't help us understand their wickedness. It only helps us understand their psychological development. In fact, I've done studies. People with psychological disorders are far more likely to suffer abuse than to commit it, meaning that disorders are not the cause of evil. They can magnify certain sinful behaviors, but they can't create them. If you get rid of all psychological disorders in the world, guess what? Sin still exists. Evil still exists. Wickedness still exists. And it's possible, very possible, for someone to be in their right mind and be evil. 
I was just reading uh, a paper today, an article by Naomi Wolf. You may have remembered this yep. one. Yep. Came out in 1995. And in the article, she makes a very eloquent argument for the fact that the unborn child is a child. She has this whole long article about how it is a child. We need to stop saying it's not a child. It is a child. It's a human being. And she says, but the mother still needs to be able to kill her child. So she makes this huge argument saying it is a child. People who are pro-chase, we need to stop arguing that's not a child. It's clearly provable that it is a child. However, the mother needs to be able to kill her child. Why? So that women can be equal with men in the workplace. It is an allowable sacrifice in her mind to murder children if women can be allowed to be totally equal with men in the workforce. In her mind, that was a necessary sacrifice. And when you read her article, it doesn't sound like the rantings of a lunatic. It doesn't sound like a madman. It doesn't sound like she has a disorder. It sounds like she is totally in her right mind, but believes something that is evil, something that is wicked. That has been sold to her as something good. That's right. She has been deceived to think that the only way that women could be quote unquote equal with men is if they are not burdened by their biological necessity to bear and raise children. That is the way that she thinks. So again, if you totally ignore the capacity for evil being an outsized source, that it's just everything contained within the brain, it's all nature and nurture, that's it, then you will miss a large portion of human behavior. And it makes people very nutty when they start thinking this way. Because again, they lose the language to be able to explain particular behaviors happening around the world. And it even makes them unable to see that perhaps the way that I'm thinking right now is evil. Perhaps it's sinful. Perhaps it's wrong. We've thrown these words out in our culture. There is no right. There is no wrong. There is only healthy and unhealthy. That's it. No, the very important thing about wickedness and evil, the reason why we use these words as Christians is because unhealthy and healthy, disorder versus ordered, all it does is it puts you in conflict with yourself and your own best interest. In other words, it makes you a narcissist. Sin, evil, wickedness, you know what it does? It puts you in conflict with God. And if it puts you in conflict with God, it makes God the only potential savior. When we acknowledge that there is a devil, there is a Satan, Satan means opposer, adversary, when we acknowledge that he exists and he has an agenda and he has a worldview and he has a perspective and he can actually move you to think the way that he does or to move you in a deceitful way away from the truth, then he has done his job. And if we acknowledge that he is under the condemnation of God and will be judged and fought until he is brought to final justice, if you follow his worldview, you are under the same condemnation. You move in his direction, God will move you in his direction ultimately. So it's very important that as Christians, we don't throw these words out. Sin and wickedness and evil, they exist for a reason. We need to utilize them. And those words almost by definition are uncomfortable. Hmm. And, and uh, when uh, I was reading the book of 1 John, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20, it gave me, uh, the Lord gave me, a, I think, a really neat insight into this. Actually, it's verse 19. It says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, notice they're not fighting the wicked one. Right. 
They're not opposing the wicked one. They're not trying to maintain a distance from the wicked one. The word lies there in the original language carries the idea of a comfortable place. And that's ultimately where evil leads us. And that's why evil does such land office business. If Satan were to come up, we talk about him showing up like a refugee from the Edward Deviled Ham can and say, ah, you know, I want, I'm going to hell. I know I'm destined for that. Uh, I've read the end of the book. I want you to go with me. Don't you want to burn in hell with me? You know, we'd go, oh, get away from me, wicked one. But instead, you know, he adjusts this world system in such a way that if you play by his rules and you do things his way, he's going to make you comfortable. He is not going to upset the apple cart. He's going to give you your, his, your desires to a certain point, but I think he's so sadistic. You know, I think of the average uh, trajectory of, of uh, a rock star like uh, Jim Morrison, who literally had everything at one point, uh, but peace, you know, and ended up dying at the age of 27, just a, you know, over-the-top alcoholic in a bathtub in, in Paris and all of this stuff. Miserable human being at the end, just you know, alienate him from almost everybody, but, but he had everything. I think Satan will take people for a while. He will use them to lead a generation in that direction. And then just because I think he's sadistic, he just tosses them away. And, and people think that's never going to happen to them, but that's the deceptive part of it all. And the thing that I think we need to really come to grips with as believers is Satan will make you comfortable in your sin. There's a certain, uh, it's kind of like baby ducks. The first thing they see, they imprint on, and they just sort of assume that's what they are. You know, we had a baby duck that imprinted on us, thought it was a person, and then it thought it was one of the dogs in the backyard. He used to go quack at the mailman along with the dogs when they'd come by. And, and you know, I think we imprint on these sinful patterns that we're exposed to, and we go, this is normal, this is natural, this is what I feel comfortable with. And then we discover that this radical statement that the Bible makes, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, old things passed away, behold, new things have come. That sounds great until God starts saying the old things got to go and the new things have to come. And the one thing that we hate more than anything else as people is change, real change, significant change. Oh, well, I, I like a change. But, but even your liking a change is, is a pattern that you've gotten into. And we like to run in these patterns. If you don't believe that's true, consider what happens on a Sunday morning when the auditorium's filled and a new person sits in your seat. <laughs> Seriously, it'll show you just what creatures of habit we really are. And the wicked one deceives us by playing into those patterns and says, you're fine. You're great. Life's not really that bad. It's working out. You can keep doing these things that you've been doing, and it's all going to be good. You know, it, it reminds me of, of a quote that I saw uh, when I saw an interview of, of Aaron Sorkin, the famous uh, movie writer. A uh, guy did uh, A Few Good Men. He did The West Wing, you know, and he said when he was doing A Few Good Men on The West Wing, he was coked up like you wouldn't believe. Did cocaine every day because it allowed him to write all night long. And, uh, you know, and then he made this statement. He goes, cocaine is great. It works until it doesn't, and then it destroys your life. 
and everybody in this auditorium that was watching this interview was like at Loyola Marymount, and they just kind of, the place got real quiet. It's like, <gasps> really? Well, sin works the same way. It does. And as we read about this, it actually fits very neatly into what you just said. Uh, verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. Very interesting description of Satan. By the word, the, the, the word devil or diablos actually means accuser, slanderer. That's like what he does. That Did you know that that was the answer to the scariest pop quiz I've ever had in my life? What's that? Uh, when we went to Israel, we went to see the city of Petra in Jordan, yeah. right? And you have to leave your tour guide behind. You have to go through all these Jordanian checkpoints. And there's, you know, barbed wire and guys with uh, AK-47s walking around and stuff like that. And you get on your bus and you go, well, we come back and you have to go through all these little cattle stall things to get through to the Israeli border. You come to the final checkpoint. And there's these three guys there at the checkpoint, the guy sitting at the desk and these two guys with the AK-47s behind him. And he's, I give him my passport and he stops me. And he goes, you, you are pastor. And I said, yes, yes, I am. He goes, I have question. He goes, who is the deity in the book of Job? And I said, well, that'd be the Lord. No, 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 no. Who is the, the deed? What does the name Satan mean? And I'm like, uh, it means accuser. He goes, good, okay, you may go. <laughs> now, I had no idea what would have happened to me if I had a brain freeze, <laughs> I didn't get this question right. I might still be rotting in a Jordanian jail for all I know. But, uh, but yeah, that, that's a little departure there, but I couldn't help but So that what in. we're teaching you guys tonight yeah, could is, actually save your life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I think it's very interesting because that means that whatever theology, whatever philosophy, whatever good, if you want to call it that, that Satan gives you is actually a stolen good. Right? Satan is, is an accuser. He's a critic. And critics don't create anything. They critique things that are already in existence. Satan cannot do anything except for steal, kill, and destroy. That's all he can do. Satan has not innovated. He has not created anything. He has stolen from God the good things that God has. And twisted them. And twisted them, warped them into something that fits his image, which is fallen and corrupt and decrepit and away from life itself. And therefore, it is dying and decaying. It's cannibalistic in its nature. And that means that no matter how great it is, whatever he gives you, no matter how great it is, it has a shelf life. It's dying. It is fleeting. Moses, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, when it talks about how he had the fortitude to leave the pleasures of Egypt, it says that he counted the suffering of the slaves more appealing than all the passing pleasures of Egypt. Very particular language that's being used there. No matter how great it is to be a prince of Egypt, all of those pleasures are passing. Doesn't mean they're not pleasurable. It just means that they have a passing pleasure. They are decaying. They're dying on the vine. The pleasure that the slaves had, although it wasn't material, Moses saw that it was eternal. It was something that lasted. It was something that couldn't 
be corrupted. It couldn't be torn away. It was something that would produce not just mere pleasure, but fulfillment, real happiness and joy, something that is actually contained. The Christian doesn't deny the pleasures of this world. We just acknowledge the creator of those pleasures and enjoy him through them. The non-believer can't do that. All they can do is enjoy the pleasures in and of themselves. But because you were created for the pleasure of the creator, which is far greater than anything that he made, anything that you access on this planet, if it's separated from him, is dying. And it will take you with it. No matter how great it is, it will take you with it. You know, I, I once hung out with a person who utilized a lot of drugs, and they said they liked a lot of hard drugs. And they said, I like these drugs because of the way they make me feel. Nothing on this earth has made me feel this way. But also, nothing on this earth has made me feel as bad as they do. Because the mm -hmm. higher the higher, the worse the come down. Right. So they, they love these things, but they are also afraid of them. Satan is like that. He can produce a lot of pleasure in you, but it's not lasting. And it will turn. And no matter how great it is, no matter how amazing it is, it is fleeting, it is fading, and it will take you with it. God is the only pleasure in this universe that will not let you down. He is eternal. He has placed eternity in our hearts, as Ecclesiastes 3 verse 10 says. And therefore, only eternity can satisfy your heart. So as Christians, we don't say, you can't have any pleasure in the world. Of course you can. But whatever pleasure you have in this world will not last and it will not totally satisfy you. Only God can do that, right? Once God comes into your life, the beautiful thing is that he hollows his creation. He makes it correct. And so the Christian is able to be pleased in the creation in its proper place. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't destroy us, but it actually draws us closer to the designer, which was the purpose it always had. Martin Luther once said, the monstrosity of sin is that it puts a weight on the creation it was never designed to bear, one that only the creator himself could. Right? So when we find our pleasure in God, that's what we discover. But Satan, being an accuser, being a critic, being just someone who can just mock and ridicule and hate, that's all he can do. He can't actually give you what he promises. And he's an unforgiving, cannibalistic master. He will turn on you. So uh, very, very important for us as Christians to understand that as well, because sometimes we can envy the wicked. We yeah. can look out and be like, like Asaph in Psalm 73, did I wash my hands in vain? Yeah. Looks like these guys are getting all that they want, and I'm a Christian, and I'm getting kind of screwed over here. You know, I'm not getting what I want. Yeah, but as for me, my, foot, my footsteps almost stumbled when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Yeah. Exactly. And man, that psalm is so good. Yeah, it's, it, it's, so good. it's a good one. Well, we've run out of time here, but, uh, you know, to sum up where we're at, you know, really kind of the most important principle, I think, in spiritual warfare that anyone will ever grasp is one of the most simple. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. You know, Satan's never had an original thought in his life. What he really does is he looks at Jesus, he despises Jesus, and so he tries to be the anti-Jesus. And he sells you on passing pleasure when you could have not only previews of coming attractions, but the hope of eternal life. 
he, he sells you on numbing yourself and try not to think about what's going on in your life instead of pursuing real healing from the inside out. Uh, he comes to us and instead of giving us true meaning and purpose, he keeps us busy and distracted and stimulated so that we don't really think too much about why there's this aching emptiness inside. But Jesus comes to make us whole. And just to touch on that point, because it, it's so cool when he says, and they overcame, verse 11, and they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So we see three weapons in this passage that Satan utilizes against the believer. Deception, which is overcome by truth. Guilt and shame, which is overcome by forgiveness, which we'll talk about in a second. And death, which is overcome by the cross. Now, let me just focus in real quick on that guilt and shame part, because that's his main job, to accuse the brethren before, the, before God. I don't know if you knew that, but one of Satan's number one ways of screwing you up and pulling you away from God and messing with your head is by utilizing guilt. He weaponizes it against us. And he's so good at it that he makes you feel righteous when you allow it to dominate your heart. He's so good at doing this that the Christian who belittles themselves and whips themselves, maybe literally, and feels like that's righteous because they're like, oh, I'm nothing before God. I sin all the time. I make a mess of my life. All true. But that is not righteous. That is actually listening solely to the voice of Satan. And you're not listening to the voice of Christ. Because the whole point of the cross is that God agrees with Satan in his estimation of your wickedness. But he disagrees with Satan in the consequences of your wickedness because he bore those consequences in his flesh and forgave us. If you're answering guilt in your life the way the world does, ignoring it, deceiving yourself. This is why people are shouting their abortions. It is their way of dealing with their guilt and their self-condemnation. It is why we're throwing away words like evil, wicked, sin, is because we're trying to delude ourselves into thinking we don't have guilt. We're trying to get away from our guilt problem by justifying our flesh. If you go that way, there is no end to justifying yourself, and it will make you more and more psychotic. It really will steal your sanity. It truly will. However, if you go the opposite way and you agree with it, you say, the reason why I feel guilty is because I am guilty, but I can be forgiven. The difference between the saved person and the unsaved person when they get to heaven is they're not going to dispute the charges. That's not the difference. Right. We're not going to stand before God and be like, hey, all the charges that say it's not true. I'm really the greatest person ever. No, we're going to agree with them. We're going to be like, He's right. Man, he didn't know the half of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only it was that, it was yeah. only that bad. But you could say, he's right. But Jesus died for me. He took the penalty for all that behavior that was just listed out. And I accept it. I've accepted that into my life. That's the difference between the person who makes it into the gates of heaven and the person who's denied. It's not that the charges are different. It's that the forgiveness is accepted. And that's what we do as Christians. Yeah. Well, Lord, thank you so much for this time tonight. Boy, we could go on and on about this. It's so deep and so rich. And Lord, we thank you that your love is so deep and so rich to us, that you are the true and living God. You are the one who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And Lord, as we look at a world that is so comfortably ensconced 
and catered to, to keep in place by the wicked one. Uh, we wonder why the wicked prosper and why uh, even the, uh, the levers of power in this world uh, and those who pursue it, it seems to select for people who are unrighteous. It, it doesn't surprise us when we understand what your word has to say. But I thank you, Lord, that in this world where there is so much darkness, you have overcome the world. And Lord, you have given us all of the resources necessary through your indwelling Holy Spirit, through the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus, through the perfect plan and your sovereign will worked out within our lives, that we don't have to go down with a sinking ship. But Lord, you've called us to reach out to those who are. And so, Lord, help us to realize that there is a battle going on, and the battle is over the eternal destinies of people, and that you have called us, and that you've decided uh, almost uh, against uh, what we would think to be all reason, to be your tools, to show the most precious thing in the world, that Jesus died for sinners, and that he rose from the dead in a moment of history, that whoever puts their faith and trust in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Help us to uh, put aside our fear and help us to be shining lights of that message in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.